At this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in chapter 11 and verse 14 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 11, verses 20, uh, 14 through 26 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 869. If you are using a church Bible, page 869. Luke eleven fourteen through 26. And before we look at our text, would you please uh, join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we ask that you would hollow your name in the preaching of your word, that we might be a people who recognize uh, more and more just who you are and, and how worthy you are of all of our praise and worship and affection and love and how worthy you are of the entirety of our lives. By the Holy Spirit, God, would you please show to us the glory of Jesus and help us to understand just how much it is that you love us. Please uh, build your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are entering into a new section of the book of Luke that runs through to the end of chapter 14, where there is a growing animosity against Jesus and this intensifying opposition to him, which really prepares us, the reader and the hearer, for the cross which is to come. That as much as we have seen more recently in previous texts, uh, the simple beauty of the disciple of Jesus really visualized in this portrait of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and taking in everything that she can from him in his word, almost like nothing else even matters. In the account of the disciples who want to pray to the Father like Jesus prays to the Father because they want that same communion and relationship with God that Jesus has and has been the bedrock of everything for him. As much as there are those who desire the Lord like this, Luke also leads us to see the other side of it. There's also a hardness of heart and a lack of reception uh, no matter what Jesus does that he can demonstrate his saving power and show his compassionate heart, and people are still not going to receive him. And there will always be throughout the age and in every time and in every place those who do come to Christ and those who will reject him instead. But this is not because of a lack of evidence or some shortage of revelation. It is because of something else of which comes out clearer and clearer in these verses before us. Why does the unbeliever refuse to acknowledge Jesus? And how then do we do ministry? We get a glimpse into the very heart of these questions in this very passage. We read in verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Uh, we see here the reality of demonic oppression and Jesus' power over it, and we see the varying reactions to it. The, the emphasis here is on the three different conclusions being writ, reached, which are still common today, that there are those who will take into account what Jesus is doing, and they are going to marvel and be deeply affected by it. And then there will be those who are offended instead and are going to attribute Jesus' power, influence, movement to something other than God. Some even go as far to say that all of this is evil. We hear some of that now, that Christianity and Christ's followers are really what is wrong with the world. The same thing happened then. And yet there are those who are more skeptical, and they claim to want more information before making any kind of decision and so their conclusion is really inconclusive. And so those who marvel, those who deny, and those who are undecided. 
But these different camps of people make themselves known in the midst of the reality of real demonic oppression, where Jesus gives another proof of his identity in freeing this person from it, the kind of oppression which left this man unable to speak and had been destroying his life. The text says that the demon is mute, which renders a man mute. And so we know thus far that demons can influence people in a variety of different ways. This man can't speak. The garrison demoniac back in Luke 8 hung out in the cemetery, broke chains, was naked, cut himself. The little boy in Luke 9 would continue to throw himself into convulsions. Demonic activity has quite a bit of variety. But it does seem that much of demonic work is in self-harm and to drive people into isolation from others and being relegated as those who need to be pushed to the fringes of society and whose families suffer dearly as a result. I think it is that demonic activity today is much the same. And while not as obviously apparent in a secular world driven by atheism and humanism where the supernatural is severely downplayed or outright rejected, I think that demonic activity today is much the same, albeit more subtle by design. I mean, why awaken people to the supernatural at all if so many deny the existence of God in the first place. But it's still the same in that it is a goal that people will come to harm themselves under this kind of influence and be isolated from other people and be driven away from the church and the gospel and the only person who can really free them in Jesus. You know, we are in, in what some have called a post-Christian culture. We see that more and more where we're uh, uh, cutting a child's body for the sake of uh, gender identity. It's celebrated. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen any of the process by which this happens hormonally and surgically. It's very damaging. It's self-arm. We're also in a, uh, a time where isolation and depression is rampant. People can be so busy and yet still feel so alone. Uh, this is a day and age where more and more Christians are being seen as really the enemy of the state. The church is viewed as the problem. Really, we are the ones holding America back from progress. That's the opinion in a lot of circles. Demonic uh, influence is not just a first century phenomenon just because it expresses itself differently in today's time rather than in the gospel accounts. I think it's foolish to believe that the devil must work in the exact same way in each and every era. He has more than one trick up his sleeve. And just so, uh, because we don't see it physically, doesn't mean that it is not happening. But here we see a reversal of that demonic influence. We see a freedom from that oppression. We see a mute man utterly changed in a moment, the proof of which this silent man is now speaking. And so there's no denying something miraculous, substantial, and unexplainable had occurred and occurred just like that. Notice there's no long chanting, reciting, or incantations. There's no candles being lit or anything like we've been informed of in exorcist kinds of movies. The first half of verse 14 is stated, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. That's it. The result, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. This is not a neck-and-neck neck battle. This is not a close fight. The authority of Jesus is undeniable, and the end result of which is very moving. I don't know if you've ever seen these videos online where a child can't hear, and they get those cochlear implants. And the videos go viral because they capture the very moment and the first realization of sound. And the look on their face when they get to hear their mom's voice for the very first time or their dad's voice for the very first time. And they turn and their eyes are wide and they're startled even. And then as the dots start to connect, the child smiles really big. 
And without even knowing this family, it can be a very moving thing to witness. No one has heard this man's voice for years, if ever. And yet the people of his community finally get to hear, his family finally gets to hear his distinct tone because of what Jesus has freed him from. And he didn't have to learn how to speak. It just came out, which means that this has been bottled up for quite some time. This person is now set free from his own long imprisonment within his very own body. It's a very profound and yet simple scene in this opening sentence that there truly is a demonic and spiritual realm, which is not always what the eye can see or what the mind can explain, and that Jesus is more powerful than the demonic, and that he can free a person from even a years-long oppression, and that evil must bow down before the Son of God. And yet all of this really is just another notch in the belt for him. Jesus has defeated the devil in the wilderness in Luke 4. He cast out an entire legion of demons in Luke 8. But the primary focus of our text is not even on this beautiful miracle. And the emphasis of this passage is on the response of the people who witness it and the different conclusions that they reach. There are those who see all of this and they marvel. Jesus doesn't really talk about that response because that's not the main point of this text. And there are others who, when they witness this, uh, they read about it. Uh, the spectacular power of Jesus over evil, they don't marvel. They attribute that power and care to something other than God. In this case, there are those within the crowd, in contrast to the ones who marvel, they're offended by it. They explain all of this power by sourcing that to Beelzebul. Beelzebul is an ancient term of a pagan Canaanite deity. By this time in the first century, that term had become synonymous for Satan, that somehow Jesus has power over the demons because he is really sent by the prince of demons. That's their conclusion. And then there are those who, by comparison, seem less antagonistic. They appear justified in their skepticism that, true, Jesus is doing some crazy things. I'm just not the kind of person that buys it all right away. I'm open-minded to the possibility. I'm willing to be convinced that Jesus is the Christ of God, but I reserve my judgment until there is some more proof. Everything he's done thus far is just not enough for me. I need an indisputable divine, from heaven kind of miracle, then I may actually put some faith in the person of Jesus. These categories are not merely first century categories. These conclusions are the same conclusions which are still being reached today, that there will be those who marvel, there will be those who are more antagonistic and hostile, and there will be those who are more skeptical, that there is never enough. This last one is really tricky because there appears to be this lack of hostility there seems to be this openness, a willingness to consider Jesus, but really there's no effort to look into it because salvation is not a high priority. The burden of proof is really his, not mine. The ball is in God's court. I'm just waiting. This last attitude may seem a little bit less antagonistic, but it is just as dangerous because you aren't really closer to God than the one who calls Jesus evil. J.C. Rowell once said, it is always one mark of a thoroughly unbelieving heart to pretend to want more evidence of the truth of religion. Unbelief is unbelief. And though there may be different degrees of it, every kind of unbelief lands you in the same place, distant and away from the Son of God. Now, we often think that evidence will necessarily demand a certain verdict. If there's a mountain of evidence, everyone's going to come to the same conclusion. The right data will lead people to the same place. 
The Bible shows to us again and again that evidence is not really and truly the main issue. The issue is not information. The issue is something else which Jesus uncovers more and more. We continue in verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided itself against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus here addresses a response and the conclusion of two groups that didn't marvel, the ones who are antagonistic and the ones who want more proof. He addresses both of them, and the way he does it shows us how the human heart and the human mind work together. First are the ones who want to attribute Jesus' power to Satan. And then we have to understand the actual accusation here. They don't say this to Jesus' face. Jesus ascertains this here because he knows their thoughts. And in their heart of hearts and in their head of heads, they're thinking Jesus is satanic. He is demonic, which is precisely the worst conclusion that anyone could ever come up with in response to Jesus setting a man free who had been imprisoned within his own body by the power of evil. They can't deny the miracle. They're not going to reject the change in the man, but we see their hardness of heart that they want to call all of this satanic. I mean, think about it. A guy's life is entirely changed for the better, and this comes after paralyzed guys are walking, lepers are back in society, task collectors have left their shady practices, the sick are made well, the blind can now see, the worst of demonic influence have to scatter at the command of Jesus. How dense do you have to be to think that somehow, somehow, Satan is the one who's really behind all of this goodness. Satan, who really wants, more than anything, humanity's demise from the Garden of Eden through current times today, how hard does the human heart have to be to call the Son of God the Son of the devil instead? This is the most wicked accusation we have in the book of Luke against Jesus. And we have to understand that accusation here to understand how the human heart and mind work together. We often think that belief and faith is primarily an action of the mind before it is an action of anything else, that we are thoroughly unbiased and that we are very capable of interpreting the data around us without any kind of bend at all. Jesus disproves this here because he takes away the mind. He shows them the fallacy of their logic and therefore the compromise that exists right here. Every kingdom divided is laid waste. Divided households fall. Satan against himself, how is his kingdom going to stand? I mean, you might recognize some of that phraseology. Abraham Lincoln's famous speech when referencing this and arguing that the United States cannot be divided permanently as half free and half slave, he said a house divided against itself cannot stand. It's simple logic, not rocket science. If Satan fights Satan and the prince of demons casts out demons, well, his kingdom's not going to be very strong, nor is it going to last very long now, is it? You can't win when you fight yourself. You can't shoot your foot and be better. 
A house divided, a team divided, a kingdom is strongest when united and weakest when it is split. Why would Satan split himself up by design to become weak? And layered on top of that is a further irony that some of these accusers, they had their own followers who tried to cast out demons as well. Maybe they're successful, who knows? But when they do it, you applaud it. Why not recognize and applaud what God is doing in Jesus? You like it when it happens and praise God for it when these guys do it. You call it satanic when this one does it. That's logically inconsistent. Do you see the bias? Their minds are compromised by something because they can't interpret the data without a severe bend. Even their thinking doesn't work right anymore, and that is exactly the point. Let me read you a quote. I've quoted this before about the human mind and heart. This is John Piper. One profound biblical insight we need to learn from this is that our heart exploits our mind to justify what we want. That is, our deepest desires precede the rational functioning of our minds and incline the mind to perceive and think in a way that will make the desires look right even if they're wrong. There is an amazing power of prejudice, that's what J.C. Rao calls it, in the hearts of those who don't want to believe. The people who reject Jesus, they want to reject Jesus. And that conditions the way their minds take in information. It forms a cognitive bias. The reasons why these ones attribute Jesus' power to Satan is because they don't like Jesus, not because the data is conclusive that he's satanic. They just don't want him. And at this point in the narrative, we've seen this conflict in class throughout our study of Luke. Jesus comes and preaches the kingdom, accomplishes miracles, heals and casts out evil, and the religious leadership, I mean, they've been waiting for the Messiah. If this is a Messiah, he's going to come and pat us on our back. He's going to make us a part of his inner circle. He's going to validate everything we've been doing with our lives, but what does Jesus do instead? He calls tax collectors to repentance. He hangs out with prostitutes. Fishermen from Galilee make up his inner circle. He heals on the Sabbath, something they would never do. Jesus is more concerned with the broken, the poor in spirit, than the influential, proud powerhouses of the world. He doesn't fit into their box of what the chosen one of God ought to be like. He does things we would never do. He hangs out with people we would avoid. And Jesus doesn't validate what we emphasize as being important. And so why do they reject Jesus? Because we just don't like them. Not because of data. Their heart precedes their minds so that their minds will conclude what their hearts desire. We see the same principle in one of the most famous passages of Scripture. John 3, 16. You've seen it at football games. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. That is a synopsis of the gospel message. You believe. You're not condemned. You don't perish. You have eternal life. But listen to come, what comes next in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. You hear that? Love of darkness, not data interpretation. 
Love of darkness, the heart precedes the mind. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. There's a reason why people don't want to believe in Jesus because they don't want to believe in Jesus. The way they're living doesn't jive with what Jesus is saying. I hate that. I love this. So I'm going to refuse that because I'm like this. Why do some in the crowds call Jesus satanic instead of God sent? Why do people today see creation, evidence of a creator, look at the world filled with sin and still deny it, hear about the cross of Jesus and his resurrection and still not believe? I mean, there are people who literally saw Jesus' resurrected body, saw the empty tomb. They were still not saved. Why did they not believe? Not primarily because of a lack of evidence, but primarily because they don't like Jesus. They love darkness instead. They love their lives without him. They don't want light. And so in their heart of hearts, they've already rejected him, and therefore in their minds of minds, now compromised by those very hearts, their minds will interpret everything that they see as biased against Jesus ever being the Messiah and the Christ of God. The heart precedes the mind, which is why the human heart must change first before the human mind can really ever understand the truth of God. This is why the Holy Spirit must work in the hearts of those who will believe the issue is here. That's why we call people to repentance, not call people to higher academia. And so this is how Jesus exposes the antagonists by proving their issue is not here. I just spoiled your logic. The issue is somewhere else. For the second group of naysayers who appear to be open-minded but conclude that the data is inconclusive, Jesus says this, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is his commentary here, visualized on what happened to the mute man. He's pulling back the curtain, so to speak, to the real battle at hand. What really happened? Whenever Jesus frees us and saves us from demonic influence, the devil is pictured as a very strong man. And for those of us who are reading through our Bible reading plans like Josh alluded to, you can pick one up on the way out if you don't have one. And we've seen it from the garden until now. Adam and Eve are in the perfect garden of paradise. No shame. They could be naked and unashamed. I can't. There's no shame, no sin, no nothing. God is with them in the perfect garden of Eden. And Satan has this power to lure them away from it. We've seen it recently. David, by his own lust, not just saying, by his own lust, in his own demise, in his sin with Bathsheba, murder of Uriah, death of his child, the war within his own family. Absalom turns against him, loses his own life in the process. The devil is a strong, strong man. Not just strong, but fully armed. Weapon, weapons and snares, fiery darts, Ephesians 6.16, not literal fiery darts on fire that shoot us physically, but this depicts graphically the kind of arsenal he has as he implements uh, what he implements in trying to bring us to destruction. And Satan guards his own palace. In this context, the mute man's heart was Satan's abode. And so he's strong, he's armed, and he's at home in this man's heart as his own palace. Uh, this is true of every single one of us before faith in Jesus. 
Ephesians 2, 1 uh, and 2, that we were each dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The devil was at home in each of our hearts. The very same strong man who had this guy had a hold on each one of us, make no mistake, and so much so that Satan himself, his goods feel really safe because he's that strong. Jesus depicts the devil as being so powerful and so equipped and so at home in the lives of unbelievers, so safe that there is really only one thing that can be done for him to relinquish his rule upon the lives of the many. A stronger one has to come and attack and overcome and take away his armor and divide his spoil. And as Jesus is talking, the crowds know the contrast in the life of this man before them. They've seen the before and after, the imprisonment and now the freedom, the muteness and now the speech. The old is gone and the new has come. And Jesus' conclusion on this illustration of sorts is that this is the finger of God and that the kingdom has come. That phrase, the finger of God, is used way back in Exodus. Let my people go, all the miraculous acts accomplished before the eyes of Pharaoh and his people. None of the magicians of Egypt could do what God had been doing through Moses and even Pharaoh's own unbelieving magicians. They say in Exodus 8, 19, this is the finger of God. Even the most notorious pagans in the past, while remaining unrepentant, they could still confess that what they were seeing is purely and utterly supernatural and utterly and purely of God. And Jesus is saying the same thing is happening right before your very eyes that the king is undeniably in your midst, demonstrated by his power over humanity's greatest enemy in Satan, the very thing no one has been able to do in all of human history, I am doing right before your faces. I am the stronger man. I have come to destroy the works of the devil. I'm the promised king, the Messiah, the Christ, who trounces on Satan and carries out to freedom those who have been bound by him. Satan's kingdom is not divided. A new kingdom has come because a new king has come. Now, what does that mean for the skeptic? The one who hides unbelief under the guise of wanting more information, like a sign from heaven. Jesus is warning those who think like this as if somehow God has not given enough or shown his fingerprints all over the ministry of Jesus. He says here, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no room for inconclusiveness as if God giving to us Jesus is somehow not enough. There is no room for neutrality. There is no safe middle ground between those who marvel and those who say he is satanic, that you are somehow in this little safe gray area. I'm not extreme this and I'm not extreme that. Jesus makes it ever so clear that if you're not with me, then you're against me. And if you don't gather with me, you will scatter. There is no safety in the middle. J.C. Ryle, again, nothing is so offensive to Christ as lukewarmness in religion. To be utterly dead and ignorant is to be an object of pity as well as blame. But to know the truth and yet halt between two opinions is one of the chief of sins. We can't go in between. We can't stay moderate. John MacArthur on these verses, there's no harmonizing, patronizing middle ground. 
You can't say he's a good man, a teacher, he meant well. There's no option for that. He's either God or he's the greatest blasphemer who ever lived. He either speaks for God or he speaks for Satan. That's it. That's it. If he's not who he says he is, he's insane, demon-possessed, and a deceiver. Or he is who he says he is. Those are the only two options. You know, perhaps you're uh, here and you're wanting to learn more about Jesus. That is entirely a good thing. Again, the context of this passage is that Jesus gives to the people conclusive information about power demonstrated, his power, in such an undeniable way that must lead us to the conclusion of his true identity of the Son of God. Uh, There are those here in the world who have not heard these accounts, and they don't have the word of God amongst them. They actually do need more information, and the universal church is sending people to these very same places, but most of these people are rare. Everyone here, for the most part, has a Bible within reach, online, believers in their neighborhoods, churches who preach the word of God within a few miles. And so I want to encourage you, for those of you who are on the fence, to not remain comfortably on the fence and to please talk to one of the pastor's elders, talk to one of your neighbors if these things uh, are such that you need help working through them. But I also want to warn you as well that that fence and that middle ground somewhere between hatred of Jesus and love of Jesus, indifference more than anything, when all is said and done, will result with the same scattering as those who hated Jesus decisively. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. We're either for Christ and his kingdom or we are against him. And if we are for him, then we are going to be on mission, on great commission of bringing God glory through the gathering of souls to worship him. Or we're just going to continue to allow the devil to do his work comfortably and safely without much opposition. Are you gathering with Jesus or are you not? We have to ask ourselves that from time to time. Be one way or be the other, but definitely none of us should deceive ourselves with some kind of in-between. Now, for those of us who are believers, uh, passages like these, rather than puff up our egos that somehow we have figured it out, what others simply cannot, remember the issue is not primarily the mind, the issue is the heart. And we did not come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is and that we are sinners like he proclaims us to be and yet at the same time loved and forgiven and cared for and purchased by his blood on the cross and given hope and new life by his resurrection from the grave. We believe none of these things on our own. The same chapter of Ephesians 2, which describes us pretty much as Jesus describes Satan's abode right here, we were all once at the mercy of the strong man. Our hearts were his palace. He felt very armed and very safe until a stronger man came in and rescued us. Ephesians 2, 8 explains what happens to the believer. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If anything, when we see texts like these, when we see those who marvel and those who deny and reject Jesus in the most extreme ways and those who try and stay in some sort of safe middle ground which isn't safe at all, if anything, when we see these texts as believers and as Christians, we should be brought to a new place of marveling that somehow God chose to save us despite us. 
The only thing that separates us from those who will perish is the unearned grace of God given in undeserved love, which is unexplainable. Marvel, brothers and sisters, that somehow we get to believe and that somehow we get to see and know Jesus for who he really is. It is the greatest privilege of this life and the next that we might be called Christians. And nothing in all the world really matters compared to this. We continue and we'll close with this, verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. If the Holy Spirit doesn't occupy the human heart, then we can get even further from God and even brought to more evil than we had ever imagined. It's not enough to get a demon out. Someone else has to take residence in our hearts. And the imagery here is that of an unclean spirit leaving a person and coming back and the place is still empty. Nothing took its place. Let's get seven more evil ones into the same heart and it's Way worse. We need the Holy Spirit. We need a different heart. We need to be occupied with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, whatever change we experience is only going to be minor and temporal. And so I want to talk about our philosophy of ministry just for a little bit as we close. It's veering from the text a little bit. There are ways that we can try and bring people into the church that really have nothing to do with Jesus. We can grab people's emotions. We can do beach cleanups, community events, that, and that will attract a certain kind of person. We can have offered to some uh, help with substance abuse. We have seen habits kicked, uh, given marriage counseling, and divorce avoided. There are many parents in the Hawaii Kai community, they want their children to have good morals, and so they drop their kids off to our ministries. We can try and grab people's minds with uh, conferences, apologetic events, grab people's emotions with outreaches, uh, homeless, out anything. Help people with their demons of alcoholism, pornography. We give money to people from our benevolence fund to those who are in need. These are all very good things, no doubt. But these things alone come woefully short of what will bring real and lasting change and eternal security. Moral children don't necessarily love Jesus. Kicking the habit doesn't mean you have the Holy Spirit. And we can love our neighbor and care for the needy even as we love ourselves and yet not even have love for the Lord at all, the second commandment without the first. And there have been more than a handful of people who come through our church because of marital difficulties, and then they find peace, and then they leave. While at peace with each other, they're not at peace with God. I have seen those in drugs kick the habit, and then they kick the church. Again, there's nothing wrong with helping people in any of these areas at all unless this is where we end, and unless this is where we think the real power of our ministry lies. If a druggie leaves drugs but has not the spirit, it means nothing. If a marriage continues and there's no divorce but that relationship has no Christ, it means nothing. We can feed people until they're full to the brim, but if their hearts are void of God, it all means nothing. And it can get a whole lot worse. You can turn over 10 new leaves, restart your life in a variety of different ways, get clean, get sober, be a person, live a better life. But if the heart is the same, empty of the spirit, 
it doesn't matter one iota. It's dangerous to be satisfied with external change when there is no true conversion to God. But while we can gain a bigger crowd if we emphasize some of these things, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, is what we know, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You can't convince someone to heaven. You can't argue someone to Jesus. It doesn't sink in without the Spirit of God. Now, how does this relate to philosophy of ministry? Our primary hope is that people will be born again. And so how are people born again? Romans 10, I'm just going to barrage you with a series of texts right now just to show you the strength of the argument. Romans 10, 13 through 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of Christ. James 1, 18, of his own will. Whose will? God's will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. You seen a pattern? All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2, verse 1, long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow up to salvation. What's our mechanism of growth? The word of God. 2 Timothy 4, 1, our charge in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. What are we going to do in this world of darkness with hard hearts? And Satan, the strong man, what does the Bible tell us to do? We don't buffer the word of God. We're going to do this and this and this and this, and maybe we'll give you one little nugget of truth. No, it's the word of God. It's only the word of God. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. What does that sound like? John chapter 3, doesn't it, huh? The heart precedes the mind. I don't want this. Give me these kind of teachers instead. Give me the half-truths. Give me the secular worldviews. Give me something that suits my passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be so reminded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Sometimes people say, do you want to get into evangelism? Hide the word of God. No. It's the word of God. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. What is the goal of ministry? What do we fulfill to be faithful to his word? Ephesians 6 calls the word of God the sword of the spirit. What is the sword of the Holy Spirit which we need to occupy this? It is the word of God. Michael Reeves, since the problem is our heart, the spirit gives us new birth into a new life precisely by giving us new hearts. The tool he uses is the scripture but through the scripture, he opens our blinded eyes to see the Lord truly and beautifully who he is, and he so wins our hearts back to him. That's what life is. It is to know him. Why do we emphasize so much of everything that we do on the word of God, the sword of the spirit? Why aren't we coming up with more and more gimmicks? Because, brothers and sisters, this is the only way that can deal with the human heart. The word of God in the hand of the Holy Spirit. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you so much. Oh, we praise you, God, that there is someone who is stronger than Satan.
that there is someone who can melt the hardest hearts. Father, we thank you so much for salvation that is found in Christ, applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that we might truly know you as our Father. Lord, would we trust in your ways and in your methods? Would no case appear to us as impossible? Help us to have confidence in who you are, in the word you have given, and in the spirit that you have promised to reside in each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.